Hey, it's so great to see you today. Thank you for worshiping with us. Uh, we're so excited to have so many people who've been joining us every Sunday online. If you're a guest or you just happened upon this, uh, this service today, we're so glad that you're here. You know, one of the great challenges in life is when we know uh, enough about a particular subject to think we're right, but not know enough about it to know that we're wrong. This is true across the board in our day, whether it's, you know, knowledge of the coronavirus or uh, economy or I've got some opinion politically I want to just spout out on social media or something. Or even when it comes to uh, maybe gossiping or not really liking someone that we really don't even know. I think we all do this, but we do this in big ways, too, like with big subjects, like the subject of Jesus and who he is and what he's done. We even do it in regard to our own identity, like who we are. And I think for a lot of us, we think even even Christians do this. We think we know enough of, about the Bible, about the gospel uh, to think that we've got it. When in reality, we don't know nearly enough about how it has truly impacted our lives. And so what we're going to do here uh, in these weeks to come, this kind of post-Easter disoriented kind of time we find ourselves in, we're going to be walking through a series of messages you can see that we've entitled uh, Identity. We're going to be talking about what it is that the that, that Jesus, uh, His life, the cross, the resurrection, how it has changed everything. Because here's the thing, His grace received by us, what he's done for us, has changed everything. And what I want to do today is look into the scriptures and, 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 and we're going to look at some truths that, that are life-changing. Now, if you're new to the Bible or new to, to Jesus and really coming to understand what he has accomplished for us, you've come to the right place. I like to say this is a safe place to hear a dangerous message. And what I mean by dangerous message is this message will change your life. Uh, now, you might be thinking, Jeff, I've had enough change in my life in recent days. But listen, this truth that I'm going to share with you today and then what we're going to look at through the coming weeks is life changing. It has been the thing that has changed my life more than anything. And so I'm quite passionate about this and I'm excited to be able to share with you what God uh, says about your identity. Now, if you are, again, new here, we want you to know that we'd love to connect you with, uh, with groups that we're launching. We're launching some new connect groups. We have groups that will help answer a lot of questions you have theologically or what in the world is going on in the world right now. So you can see the number there. Just connect with us. We'd love to help you uh, pray for you or serve you in any way that we can. But here's what we're going to do. Now we're, we're going to, to dive into kind of this idea of, you know, now that Easter has come and gone, so what? We're going to look and see what did the Christ event, okay, his life, his death, his resurrection, how does that change my life today? And we're going to look at it with some deeply theological concepts that we're going to talk about. And this uh, today, this week, we're going to talk about propitiation. Now, that's a big word that we'll unpack a little bit. Next week, we're going to talk about, as we keep going on here, we're going to talk about regeneration. 
Then we're going to talk about justification. We're going to talk about reconciliation, sanctification. Then we're going to talk about glorification. So all these big words that really help us to unpack and understand what is it that Christ has done for us. So we all wrestle with significance in life. And I want us to think about this as I set this up for a moment. Um, you know, that we that, that, that we matter. We, we all wrestle with our identity, our value, our worth. You could talk about it in a lot of different ways. But one of the things that's been so fascinating for me uh, early on with this coronavirus, all this sheltering, was that someone in authority um, determined, they deemed those who were essential and then those who were non-essential. Now, that, that has radically changed some lives, just that designation. Uh, but many of us early on were like, well, I, I, I kind of thought I was essential. <laughs> I thought I mattered, right? I thought I was bringing something to the world. And then you were deemed non-essential, like, as if you don't matter. I mean, even the term sounds like rejection. I'm not accepted somehow in this thing. And then others of us were determined, well, I'm essential. I matter. You know, I'm grateful to live in a, in a country, I mean, my personally, um, that the church and what we do matters evidently, or it's been deemed essential. But for those of us who have been uh, employers of people that we've sought not to furlough or not to lay off, uh, or maybe you have been one of those, you were deemed non-essential, and that has radically changed your life. This has been horrific and challenging for so many of us. But uh, what I want you to, to, to wrestle with today is this. Many of us, in varying ways, feel that we uh, are kind of non-essential. Um, maybe long before these designations came out. That I've wondered, does my life matter? And I think all of us wrestle with that. Uh, who am I is the core question. Where is my identity found? And what I want you to see today, the, the basic truth that I want you to understand today is this. You are accepted. See, many, many Christians um, live in, with this perpetual identity crisis. Um, uh, many, many, most people do. Uh, but even those of us who claim to be believers in Jesus. But here's the thing. All of us have experienced a kind of identity theft. That's really part of the biblical narrative. We've experienced this, this, this thing where you know, all of our dreams and hopes of who we would become or the, the best you know, me that I could possibly become has been crushed. And many of us ex have experienced dreams or hopes of what we desire to be. And those desires and hopes have been crushed. And so in this uh, post-Easter season, Again, a time of such disorientation. Uh, so many cha changes in our lives. And we're not even sure where this is heading or will there be this new normal that everybody's talking about or what will it look like? Many are saying that our recovery here will be years to come. And for some of us, life will never be the same again. So what is it that stays the same? Can I anchor my soul? Uh, can I truly find my identity, my worth in something that never changes? And I'm here to tell you today that there is. And this is the greatest news of all. In fact, 
the Apostle John is the one who's going to help us understand this today. So go ahead and turn to 1 John. Uh, you may take a while to find that, but grab a Bible, sure enough, a real Bible, and look, find 1 John. And uh, as you're finding it, I'll continue to set this up. Um, because I want you to, to, to wrestle with this question. You know, is my life essential? Do I matter? And who am I really? How do you find your identity? Let's, let's get underneath this because this, again, is life-changing. Now, in uh, Jonathan Franzen's uh, novel, it's called Freedom, he has one of his characters, Joey Berglund, and, and he reflects on contemporary selfhood. And as he's thinking about it, and he, he says that it can feel like being a collection of contradictory potential someones. A collection of con- contradictory potential someones. That is to say that, that, that you know, most of us define ourselves as a collection of certain things that are often contradictory. I want you to think about this with me. We, we all determine our worth in, in at least these three collective ways. Uh, I, I am who, I am what I do, right? That's, that's, that's a quick one. I am what I have, or, or, or one in, in a contemporary paradigm nowadays, I am what I desire. Think about that. I am what I do. And this starts early on, right? I'm, I, uh, I am very, very smart, or I'm cute. I'm the good kid. Uh, it's based on what I do. And then we get older, right? I am uh, a, a soccer player, or I am, or for me, I'm a pastor. I'm an attorney. I'm a doctor. I'm a businesswoman. I'm a parent. I'm a husband, or I'm a wife. See, we define ourselves by what we do. And of course, this is not new. I mean, do you know anybody who, whose name is Smith or last name Miller or Baker? Guess what their families used to do, right? Now, for some of us, if that were still the designation, we have a long, strange name based on the many jobs that we probably had. Um, but think about this. If, if there's not a healthy differentiation between what you do and who you truly are at the core, that's going to lead to all kinds of trouble, right? What happens when you lose that job? When you don't do that thing anymore? When you're unable to do that? We've seen a lot of that in this season right now. I can't do what I used to do. Maybe I'm not that. This has been a great time to get underneath a lot of that. What is the truest thing about me? Uh, or how about this? Why is it that when a professional athlete, for instance, goes through a career-ending injury, that they don't just need physical therapy, they need therapy. Because they're asking then the existential, existential question, uh, who am I? If I'm not defined by this sport that I've been good at since I was in the fifth grade, who am I? And we all walk through varying degrees of those kinds of questions. Because we often determine our worth by what we do. How about this? We often determine our worth or our value, whether we're essential or not, by what we have. And this doesn't have to just be what we own. Now, a lot of people do that, basing their identity on the stuff they have. But it's, it could be, um, I, have, uh, I have good looks or I have intelligence. Again, I have this Enneagram type. That's what I have. That's who I am. Or how about this? It gets real sticky when we think, uh, I have this past. I have these vulnerabilities. I have these imperfections. I have these parents. I have this body. I have 
or some of us, how about this, not basing our value on what we have, but what we don't have. And so we determine, well, I'm, 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 my identity is found in what I don't have. Or how about this? Even in these days, our young parents who are, uh, can relate to this during the coronavirus, you've become now 24-7 uh, parents, teachers, coaches, cooks, you, all of these things. You have all of this going on, and it can be overwhelming. Now, some, some would say, well, that's just called parenting. Well, no, not just constantly, so close together, in such close proximity, and we've got to uh, extend a lot of grace. And I would just say that to parents. Parents, lots of grace coming your way, and you are enough for your children. Just love them, and we won't be in this forever. Praise be to God. Just hang in there. But so often we're defined by what we have, or maybe again by what we don't have. But the new contemporary paradigm is this. I am ultimately defined, my identity is found in what I desire. In other words, uh, I, I, I can discover myself, my true identity, by unpacking my true desires. It's found from within. What I desire the most then defines me. Now, the problem with this, of course, is that the Scripture teach us, the Bible teaches us, that our desires are twisted. In fact, if everything comes out of my desires, man, that ultimately leads to self-destruction. Most of us know that experientially. The Bible says there's nothing good in us, that sin is not just you know, good behavior or bad behavior instead of good behavior. Sin is a condition of the heart. So if I determine my worth or my value by what I desire, that leads to all kinds of problems. That's why we see so much confusion around sexual identity. We've made sexual desire the truest thing about a person. And it's not. It never has been. There's something deeper. There's something greater. And so what I want us to do is look at this. we got to get underneath this. I'm not defined by what I do. I'm not defined by what I have. And you're not defined by what you desire. If you are, see, human desires are insatiable. They're, they're, they're unquenchable. And, and if left unchecked, they lead to all kinds of self-destruction. So here's where the modern, if you will, uh, philosophy leads us. I am who I say I am. So it's the autonomous self. It's me with no outside authority. I will determine who I am, right? And here's, here's the problem with that. Uh, we then base our, our worth on our performance or our ability to gain the approval of certain people in our lives. And most of us, that's all we know. Could it be that the truest thing about you, the most glorious thing about me, is not what I even I think of myself or what I say about who I am, but what God says and what He says, who He says I am, is the most important thing about me, the truest thing about me. You know, I like to say it this way. Uh, I, I suppose I am a collection of potentially you know, contradictive type of personalities or people. Um, I am a, uh, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a, I'm a brother. I'm a friend. I'm a son. I'm a pastor. But none of those things are the truest thing about me. 
Because in any moment in time, any one of those things could be taken away from me. What if my value and my worth is not a self-determination? What if it actually does come from one who is in authority over all things? And that's what I want us to see today. So 1 John, I want you to look at 1 John. We're going to look at chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. All right, so grab your Bible. You can take some notes here. Uh, This is John the Apostle. We looked at him last week, if you were with us. He's the one, the biographer, who wrote the story we looked at last week in the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John as well. But he's telling the story. He's the beloved disciple. And when we saw him... Uh, Last week in the book of John, he's a young disciple, probably in his 20s. Now we see him. This is probably 80, 90 AD. Now he's the elder John. He has been a a pastor, a follower of Jesus, a a witness, a testimony to what Christ has done. And in the first chapter, you can see here, even in verse 1, he talks about how we've touched him. We've seen him. Sounds like the opening of the the book of John, the gospel of John. We've we've, uh, beheld his glory is how he said it there. Well, then in verse 3, I'm I'm now in chapter 1, before we get to chapter 2, we see his purpose in the writing. He says, we have, I'm sharing all this so that you may enter into fellowship with us and enter into fellowship with God, have a relationship with Him and make my joy complete. The great joy of a believer, you see, is to tell the great news of the gospel. And that's what John is saying here. But then he moves straight. I want you to see this. He moves straight into how the gospel then, what Christ has done for us, should change everything about our lives. Everything about how He lives. Uh, about how we live. And so he uses contrasting language throughout the book. He talks about light up against darkness. He talks about righteousness up against sin. He talks about love for the Father up against love for the stuff of this world. Hard-hitting truth. But you sense this is a loving, elder man who has learned how to love. He is still defined as the beloved disciple. I'm the one Jesus loves. And that's every one of us. If we've received His grace, we understand that. So here's the question, again, we're going to unpack. So important. How do we know we're accepted? How do you know you're essential? How do I know I'm accepted by God? And if so, if I am, on what basis? One of the key questions in all of life. And so look at this. We know that we are accepted. All right? Look at the first verse. My little children. Here he is. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Okay, so we know that we are accepted first because he fights for us. Look at this. He advocates with our Father. He supports us. He champions us. He stands up for us. This is what this means. How does he fight for us? Well, the language here is a bit like uh, one standing before the ultimate judge, uh, pleading a case before the judge, but it's much more intimate than that. It's not that 
Jesus trying to twist the Father's arm. This is the Trinity. They're one in purpose. They, they are all in. It's more like the Father is our patron. He's a protector. He's a guardian. And so they're, they're, they're one in this purpose. You see, the Father's the one who initiated this. He sent His Son to die on the cross for us. So we know we're accepted because Jesus fights for us. And we know that we're accepted because he died for us. Look at verse 2. He is the propitiation. There's that word. For our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the one who is our advocate. He champions us before the Father. But he's also the one who's taken away the penalty of our sin. See, see we've been proclaimed guilty by a holy God, sentenced to death. Jesus steps in and he becomes not only our advocate, but he's also the one who sets us free. He takes on the penalty for our crime. Look at verse 26 of Romans uh, 3. He says it, Paul says it this way. It was to show his righteousness at this present time. This is what he's done. So that he might be just, okay, remain just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's one and the same, the just and the justifier. So he's become our propitiation, okay? That is to say, God's wrath satisfier. He's become the atoning sacrifice, is how we say it. It's why Jesus, when he was in the garden just before um, his crucifixion, the very next day, he said, Father, if there's any way to pass this cup, this, pa this cup could pass from me, let it be. Now, what is he talking about? Well, the cup was a symbol in the Old Testament of, of the wrath of God. And Jesus was about to drink all of the wrath of God on our behalf so that the wrath of God, His holy reaction to sin, would come upon His Son and not to us. It's why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, some of you know this is my life verse. This is the gospel. Change my life. For our sake... He made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, okay, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. I love that. The Living Bible says it this way. He took our sin and he poured it into himself on the cross. He took his righteousness then and he poured it into us. Friend, if you're in him, you are covered in His grace, totally love, completely accepted, evidently essential to the Father. And in this unique time of history, I find it so interesting that, that we see you know, uh, a need for this grace in our own personal lives, but we need grace for one another. Friends, if there's ever been a season where we need to extend grace to one another, it's now. And I just want to encourage you, offer a little grace to yourself. And parents, extend grace to your children. Siblings, let's extend grace, meaning just love each other unconditionally. We all need it. This sheltering has put us in close proximity and for a long time. It is a challenging season, and I just want to encourage you. And I've seen it with people. You know, we've realized that certain people mean so much to us that we can't see. It's true that absence does make the heart grow fonder. I'm seeing a softer, gentler, 
uh, posture in so many lives. You know, this is a time for grace. So let's receive the grace of God and let's extend that grace to one another. And listen, give a lot of grace to yourself. It's so important for each of us to do this. But here's what here, here's what's interesting. See, see, we've we've been so close to each other that we're becoming. Here's what happens: the closer you are in relationship, the more fully known you are, with all the good and bad that comes with me. Stacy now is getting to know me better and better, even after all these years of marriage. But here's what happens: to be fully known and yet still fully loved. Now that is an amazing gift. And that's the gift we need to extend to each other. I love what Tim Keller writes in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He says this, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, which is why so many people live at a distance, never allowing people to really get to know them. But to be fully known, he goes on, and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything, he says. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. See, we know we're accepted because he fights for us. We know we're accepted because he, he died for us. But look at this, finally, we know we're accepted because we live for him. Look at verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. See, look at this. The final proof is what John is saying. You can know, how about this, that you're accepted because uh, Jesus fights for you. You can know that you're accepted because He died for you. But the final proof is not that. You can know those things and not know Jesus. The final proof is that you actually have received His grace and in response, you're living for Him. This is what John is saying. Look at verse 4. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. He's saying you're lying to yourself. But whoever keeps His word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. See, this is the great challenge. To know enough about a subject, to think that I'm right, but not enough about it to know that I'm wrong. This is what John's saying. You're lying to yourself if you don't truly live this out. Look at verse 5. By this we may know that we're in Him. There it is again. That I'm in Him, covered in His grace, forgiven, accepted, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. He's saying, if you're in him, he used this phrase twice here, then you're covered in his grace, and now you're going to walk as he walked. You're going to practice the way of Jesus. You're actually going to live like your rabbi. And this is how you know whether you know him or not. James speaks of this as well, right? Faith without works that follow is dead faith. It's not alive. It doesn't exist. And so we, we love each other. We love others like Jesus. That, that's what this looks like. We love God and we love others just as Jesus has. You know, it's been fascinating to me 
again, to watch in this particular cultural moment how everything's been turned upside down. I mean, think about this. Those who are essential, designated essential even, are, are the nurses and the doctors. We've already really celebrated them. We continue to do so. Those on the front lines. How about, how about people who are uh, grocery store workers? In the few times that I've gone out, I've been so grateful and have thanked people who are serving us, public safety types. You know, it's people who serve. And I find this so interesting because this has always been the way the kingdom of God has operated. This upside down kingdom. Those who are last, those who serve, are the greatest. They're the first in the kingdom. And I just want to take a moment to celebrate those who've been serving us. I mean, you're seeing me right now because of a cameraman right behind the camera. People you'll never see. People who have been helping us with technology and, and turning on a dime so that we can help you grow, continue to follow Jesus every day. And I hope that you too, like me, are so grateful for the countless hours of people that you'll never see who now have become the most important among us. This is the kingdom of God. As we serve one another, we become essential in the kingdom, is what God says about us. And then look at what he says later in chapter 4, as I close, verse 10. In this is love. Here he just spells it out. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son, here's the word again, as a propitiation for our sins. He's the atoning sacrifice. He is the wrath satisfier. Jesus comes and he takes on our sin. He loves us. So everything we do is out of love for him. You see that? The more I understand this grace, the more I realize how I'm accepted in Him, the more I understand what He did on the cross and how that changes my identity. It changes everything about me. Then I respond to Him in obedience. That's what it means. The cross, the resurrection has changed everything. You see, through His death, He proclaimed you essential if you have received His grace. Listen, we talked about it last week. He invested a crucifixion in you. He invested a resurrection in you. You are essential, loved by Him. You're completely accepted by Him. So again, the question, am I accepted by God? And if so, on what basis? So here's the thing. Your worth, your identity is not determined by what you do. It's not determined by what you have, and it's not determined by what you desire. But even my twisted desires can be transformed so that I desire Him, that I love Him, and I live for Him. Listen, if you have received Christ, you've been deemed essential, you are accepted, not rejected, you are loved, never abandoned. So here's what's true about you. It's not even what you say about who you are. It's what God says about you. I am who God says I am. That is the truest thing about you. So I want us to close our time in prayer, and then we're going to sing a song together 
and proclaim this truth. But listen, friend, if you've never received Christ, then this is not true of you. You're not in him. You're still under the wrath of God, his holy reaction to sin. And so I want you to receive Christ right now. So let's just bow our heads and close your eyes just right where you are and focus on him. If you've never received Christ, all you have to do by faith, praise God, not by what you do or what you have or how good you are, but by faith, receive what he has already accomplished for you. Just say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. I give you my life. I receive your grace and I respond to your great love by living for you. I give you my life. Thank you for forgiving me, giving me a new identity so that I can be accepted into your family. Lord, we love you. We give you our lives today. May we live out of this new identity that you've given to us because of Jesus. We are now who you say we are. And that is the truest thing about us. And we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.